0: You are listening to the Reality Church Ventura podcast, a collection of sermons from our weekly Sunday gatherings. To learn more about reality, visit us online at realityventura.com. Hi, my name is Madi, and I have the privilege of serving in kids' ministry, and today's scripture passage is um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 1 through 10. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. To the Church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, Among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith and all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you, because you believed our testimony to you. This is God's word.
1: Thank you, honey. Today we begin a new series through the book of 2 Thessalonians that will take us all the way up to Easter. And I believe that it is very important at this point in time that we do. And today I hope to introduce the book to you, but also show why we must Begin with gratitude, and that it is indeed a defiant gratitude that is taught at the beginning of this book. Let's pray together, and let's ask the Spirit of God to speak to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path that you have not left us in the dark in the chaos and the uncertainty of this world to find our way, but you have spoken to us through your word and ultimately through your son who came to live, die, and rise for us. And I pray that you would help us to live in light of his resurrection and his return. Correct us where we have perhaps gone astray. Encourage us where we have lost heart and guide us and direct us by your spirit as we seek to live on your mission in such a time as this. And for anyone here who does not yet know you, we pray that today they would put their faith and their trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And it's in his name we pray. And everyone said, amen. I do believe we are living in a great cultural moment of uncertainty about what's happening now around us and about what will happen in the future. What does it all mean? How should we live? And what are we holding on to for hope in the midst of it all? There seems to be two common errors that characterize people during uncertain and chaotic times. I wonder would one of these characterize us? First, there's the response, the error of passive withdrawal. Oh, well, nothing that can be done. There are many people outside the church who take this view. There are also people within the church that take this view. They kind of withdraw from all engagement. Just, well, the world's going to burn. I'm just going to like live off the grid And it'll all happen. That's one error. But there's an equal and opposite error. Not passive withdrawal, but panicked activism. They don't respond with, oh well, but oh no. We've got to save this thing. We can do it. We must look inside ourselves, and if we don't act then nothing will change. And perhaps you know many people who are living like that, especially on social media, this kind of panicked activism. Not, oh well, but oh no, we've got to save the world. But the followers of Jesus should be marked neither by a passive withdrawal from the culture, nor a panicked activism to the culture, but persistent faithfulness within the culture. We don't say, oh, well, or oh, no. We say, oh, right. Jesus told us that it was gonna be like this and that he had a mission for us within it all. Jesus told us the world would be full of trouble, but he would bring life, and salvation within it. This is a posture commended by the Apostle Paul in his letter to a church facing uncertainty and opposition. An important call to what we all must do in turbulent times. Hold fast. It's what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 15 In the middle of his letter, he says, So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you. That's what we're going to learn to do over the next few months and why we've entitled the series Hold Fast. And here's why it matters. Whatever you hold fast is what you will hold forth. That is, whatever you're holding fast to for your own life is what you will hold forth to the world. Whatever you're putting your trust in for yourself is the very thing that you will advertise to all the people around you. It's a principle. Whatever you hold fast is what you will hold forth. You can tell what people are holding fast to by what they are holding forth to the world. What are they always talking about? What are they promoting? What are they evangelizing, if you will? If your friend or if you yourself are always talking about politics at the level of like the utmost hope and dread, then most likely you are holding fast to that thing as your only hope. God help us. See, here's what I've noticed. In our modern day, people have not become less religious. They've become religious about different things. If you're not believing in God, if you're not believing in Christ, you're still religious. You're just religious about different things. And so we make politics a religion. We make money a religion. And in that way, our culture is not that much different than the ancient culture in which Paul preached almost 2,000 years ago. Living in one of the largest and most important cities in the area of Macedonia meant that Thessalonica was a very cosmopolitan city. And religiously speaking, there was a little something for everyone as long as you paid your taxes to Rome. That's how it worked in the Roman Empire. Yeah, believe what you do you, but you better pay your taxes. And this city's connection to Rome is no doubt one of the reasons why the apostle Paul had arrived there a few years before the time of his first letter. See, Paul was a church planner, and when he shared the good news, men and women were changed by the gospel as he shared the good news about Jesus, and they were organized into a local church congregation. But almost immediately, when the church was still quite new, opposition arose and even forced Paul out of the city. And so, in his concern for these men and women, Paul sends Timothy, one of his young co-workers, to go check in on the Thessalonians to see how they were getting on. And once Timothy first returned from his visit, he was happy to report that the community was doing well, though there are some issues that needed to be addressed, particularly regarding their belief and their behavior. Among some of the issues was the return of Jesus Christ, some confusion over the nature and the details of the return of Jesus That affected how they should be living now in the present. That was the content of his first letter, which some of you may remember we studied about a year and a half back. And it was literally only a matter of months, maybe a year, after writing his first letter, that he needs to write a second letter. And in this letter, he has to address again the topic of the return of Jesus Christ. There continued to be confusion. But he also wrote because there continued to be opposition. And in the midst of that opposition, they are asking, has Jesus returned already? If not, when will it happen? And how should I live in the meantime? And when he writes this letter, it comes not only from him, but his co-workers. And so if you have your Bibles open, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is fitting that this second letter should come from all three men as they were involved in the planting and forming of this church. Although Paul appears to be the principal person in the composition. And so throughout the series, we will simply refer to Paul as the author of this letter. And why did he feel compelled to write? You see, since the time he wrote his first letter, as I alluded to earlier, opposition against these Christians from the culture had intensified. So he needed to give them perspective and encouragement. And, as also mentioned earlier, more confusion has, had arisen about the return of Jesus Christ and what we might call end-time events. And he needed to bring clarity. And in light of this confusion, some believers were becoming idle, afraid, and some, busybodies, an attitude he needed to correct and so we have then the three themes that Paul addresses in this short but powerful letter. So take note, this is what we're going to learn about in this series the themes of 2 Thessalonians. First, encouragement amid opposition. And don't we need that in such a time as this? Many of us as individuals, and all of us as a church, we need encouragement amid opposition and troubles that are taking place around us. But secondly, there's explanation around end times events. Something we also need as so much speculation goes around within the church. We need the clarity of what God's word says. And third, exhortation around idle living. A lesson we also Desperately need in this year. Those are the three themes, the major lessons, if you will, from Second Thessalonians. But, and this is very important, rounding off each of these short chapters is a prayer. At the end of chapter one, a prayer. At the end of chapter two, a prayer. At the end of chapter three, a prayer. Which shows us that prayer is absolutely essential for us if we are to hold fast to timely truths in turbulent times. And so these are the prayers of 2 Thessalonians that hopefully would inspire our prayers here and now. The end of chapter one, there's a prayer for fruitfulness, that we, amidst all that's going on around us, would be remarkably fruitful in the work of God's kingdom. The end of chapter two, it's a prayer for strength, that our hearts would be strengthened, that we would not lose heart, but take heart through our faith in Christ. And at the close of the letter, in chapter three, he prays for peace. Not just any peace, but a peace for every single season of life. Where does he start? As he addresses all of this and prays, he starts with an encouragement. Which is surprising because many of us, if I were in Paul's shoes addressing Christians that needed to be corrected and who are stressing me out... I might begin by reminding them what they are doing to me. (laughs) And make no mistake, Paul will address these matters. But where and how Paul begins becomes our first lesson, and an important lesson. A lesson in what I would like to call defiant gratitude. An attitude of thankfulness despite cultural opposition and church difficulty. A lesson we desperately need in the year 2024. And I want us to ask, I want you to ask, is your life marked by gratitude? If you ask the people that knew you well, if you ask your coworkers. Would they come back and say, when I think of so-and-so, I think of gratitude? Well, if you're anything like me, they would probably think of complaining. Tim, he always complains. Something's always wrong. What would it be for you? Is your life marked by gratitude? What would people say the first thing they think about when they think about you is And then I'd like to broaden the question. Would Reality Ventura be marked by gratitude? Sure, there are many issues we need to talk about and things to address, but are we marked by gratitude? I would go so far as to suggest that this kind of gratitude in of the chaos around us, is one of the greatest witnesses to the gospel. Because it shows clearly that our hope does not lie within the world, but beyond the world in Jesus Christ. Sometimes the church needs to remember this. So I want us to note three lessons. And the first is this. Note the discipline of gratitude. It's the first thing we learn as we begin to study this book that is going to deal with uncertainty and end times, events, and behavior, where it begins is with this discipline of gratitude. Though Paul begins both of his letters to the Thessalonians with gratitude, there are some subtle differences in this second letter that are important for us to note and to highlight related to the words he uses. So look at verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters. Now, if you've Studied the letters of Paul, or if you've read them before, these words might be so familiar to you that you would just breeze past them. Say, Paul always does this. He says like a generic word of thankfulness and gratitude. He moves on. But there are three words that I would like to highlight ought, always, and you. This is where we learn the discipline of gratitude. First, friends, note that he expresses a sense of priority, even obligation to give thanks. When he says, we ought to give thanks, it is right for us to give thanks. And he begins in that way. So let me be clear. There are no two ways about it. What Paul models here for us is that gratitude must be a prioritized practice. Now, I know when I use the word discipline, some of us are like, oh, I don't like that. But listen, discipline is not a dirty word. Here's my little definition. Discipline is a priority put into practice something that you hold in your heart and your mind as a priority, so much so that you actually put it into practice even when you don't feel inspired to do it. Practically, that means that we actually need to stop and look for and think about reasons to be grateful. Let me put it this way. Gratitude is not involuntary, (laughs) at least for many of us. The Bible doesn't say, hey, just hang out, and maybe, mysteriously, gratitude will arise in your heart. It's actually often referred to as, as a discipline, like a choice. I'm going to look for reasons to be grateful, which is challenging because the default. Setting the factory setting, if you will, of of my heart is not gratitude. It's usually complaining. I don't have to be very creative or disciplined to complain about things, right? That's why nobody talks about complaining as a discipline. Like, hey, I really think you need to exercise complaining. Really? I don't know. It's hard for me. Well, just think about everything wrong with the world. There's something wrong with the world? Yeah. Think about your spouse. Is there anything to complain about? Well, I can't really. Never really thought about it before. <laughs> like Nobody tells you to practice complaining. It comes naturally. What we must do is prioritize gratitude. We ought to give thanks. Notice that. Underline it. Highlight it in your Bible. We ought to. To give thanks. We ought to be grateful. Friends, are you convinced that gratitude must be a priority in your life? That when you wake up in the morning, you're like, of all the things I have to do, I must start by looking for reasons to be grateful. And do you put that into practice? That leads to the second word. First, we ought to give thanks. But secondly, notice. Paul says, we ought sometimes to give thanks. No, that's not what he says. What does he say? Always. We ought always to give thanks. He practices gratitude continually. And so it should be for us. Listen. There's no formation without repetition. The way that you are formed as a person comes through things repeatedly happening in your life. There's no formation without repetition. And if you aren't intentional about your habits and what you do regularly, and that those habits come from scripture, you will be formed and discipled by the world. We're all being formed as disciples. The question is, are we being formed and fashioned by the world? Or are we being formed and fashioned through our habits by Jesus Christ? We ought always. Something that is a part of our regular and daily rhythm. Listen, I know that this isn't some kind of a mystery. But the way to become a grateful person, spoiler alert, is to practice giving thanks. It's as simple as that. You're like, well, I'm just not naturally a grateful person. No one is. But the way to become a grateful person is you practice gratitude. It's so simple. Just start. We ought always, but then there's a third, to give thanks for what? For the church. Uh oh. Let's be honest. Gratitude and thanksgiving do not tend to be the default posture of our heart when it comes to the church. We tend to go straight for the difficulties, the irritations, the the mistakes, the errors. I mean, if I were Paul, a thought experiment I engage in often. If I were Paul, I would start my letter with a little something like this. To the church in Thessalonica. Really? (laughs) I leave you alone for two minutes. And here I am writing another letter. Don't you know I have things to do? I leave you alone. And there's already confusion about this and I gotta address your mistakes about doctrine again. Like, ah, That's how I would start the letter. But no. Paul begins, we ought always to give thanks for you. He begins with a strong expression of gratitude. Listen, this is a simple but important point. You can still be thankful for someone in the church while still at the same time acknowledging that there are issues you need to address. Paul will address those issues, and yet he begins with gratitude. Think about the church in Corinth. They were crazy. It's like, read Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. It's like Christians gone wild. It's going to be 15 chapters, primarily of correction. But when he begins his letter, he says, I thank God for all of you. It is so countercultural. It is so provocative to the world around us that we begin with gratitude. I had another thought experiment. this I I just thought of it this morning, so it could be terrible, but just go with it. Imagine this week, you were invited by CNN or Fox News to go on air, on live television, and you were going to comment on the state of the world and the church. That may or may not be a disaster, depending on who gets that call. But just imagine for a moment, if you go on air and they're like, hey, you know, so-and-so, what do you think about the state of the world and the state of the church? And they are like, well, Barbara, the first thing that I would like to say is I am so grateful for the church of Jesus Christ because of their increasing faith and their abounding love across this nation and across the world. You never hear anything like that on the news. You'd gather your children around and like, look, it's a Christian being thankful. <laughs> and the kids are like, dad, they don't ever do that on Facebook. No, no, we've never seen it before. Can you imagine? Sure, there's stuff to talk about. But we begin here with the discipline of gratitude. We ought to. Always to thank God for the church, for believers in Jesus Christ. Why? Because if that person, if those people belong to God, then regardless of how frustrating they are, irritating they are, misguided they are, immature they are, or mistaken they are, they are an evidence of God's grace. And that leads to the second point about this kind of gratitude. First, we note the discipline of gratitude. We ought always to give thanks for you. But secondly, note the delight of gratitude. He does get specific. You might say, okay, I need to be grateful, but for what? Okay, settle down. He has reasons. He has reasons. Because of the grace of God to these men and women in Christ, he has a duty to be grateful, a responsibility, but there's also a delight. As he reflects on now, it's a discipline, you've got to look for it. Right? You don't just wake up in the morning and you're like, oh, what are all the ways I can be grateful today? It's a discipline. But as he looks, what does he see? Look at the end of verse 3. And rightly so. Oh, do tell Paul. What do you see? Because your faith is growing more and more. And the love All of you have for one another is increasing. Think about that sentence. And we ought always to give thanks for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so. Here's here's why two simple reasons. Two things that you and I can look for every morning when we wake up growing faith and increasing love. There are these specifics that come to mind when he practices this discipline of being grateful. What is it that we should be delighting in? Well, first, there's this growing faith. Listen, this is important because facing trials of any kind is incredibly hard. But it is also necessary Because an untested faith can be an untrusted faith. You don't really know if it's genuine until it's been tested. As much as I don't like to say that, it is true. Our faith is shown to be real and genuine when it is tested by the trials and tribulations of life. So, Paul was filled with gratitude because, in spite of the hardships all around them, and in spite of the questions that they were still wrestling with, and some of the confusion and poor teaching that they were receiving, they were still holding fast. They were still holding fast to Christ, and their faith was growing. That's what happens when you hold fast to Christ in trials. As many of you have heard it said, faith is like a muscle. It must be exercised in order to grow. And whether we like it or not, there are few things that grow the faith muscle like the pressure of trials. The obstacles then become our opportunities the obstacles, the things that might oppose us, they become our opportunity to grow. You meet that resistance by holding fast to Christ. And when you do, one of the greatest evidences of that, of the growing faith, is what? Increasing love. Increasing love. Which is particularly important that he mentions that. And here's why. Suffering... Can lead us to become selfish. Any of us in this room that have suffered, you know that. You know that one of the great temptations when you suffer is to become totally self absorbed. When you're suffering, you're like, how come they didn't call? Where was Reality Ventura? When I needed them. How come these people don't care? How come this is happening to me? Why aren't you helping me with this? Why aren't you saying that? Let's be honest. Suffering can oftentimes lead us to becoming selfish. We've all seen it. But because of their growing faith in Christ, suffering did not make them selfish, it made them selfless. And that really is a definition of the Christian word for love. Because, listen, the way that Christians redefined the word love is astounding. Traditionally, in the ancient culture, the word love, especially in the Greek-Roman society, was this. I find a worthy object or person, and I seek to possess them. That's how love was understood. I find a worthy object, and I want it. But Christian love was a great contrast Because it is not a love based on those who are worthy, but unworthy. And it is not a love that seeks to possess, but seeks to give. How did that come to pass? Because that is Christ's love for us. Jesus Christ did not look down at the world and say, yeah, you're worthy. So I will come down and meet you. No, no, no. We are unworthy. We have sinned against God. we turned away from him. And yet he came. And why did he come? To set us free. This is Christian love. When Paul remembered the Thessalonians and he was grateful, he remembered their love. And this is so powerful because when we hit a wall, when the going gets tough, under normal circumstances, we would be prone to burnout, especially when we face a person who in our own estimation would not be worthy of our love and come at great cost. You know those people. They call you and you're like, oh dear. And you have the option of the green button or the red button. And you're like, ooh, this looks like trouble. Or you say, I mean, this happens all the time. I I see that person, They show up, I see red or green, and I go, this is gonna cost me. (laughs) (laughs) So where do I find the motivation? Where, where, Where do I find the power, the strength? It does not come from me, it comes from Christ. We have this new resource that when we cling to him, it produces love. Now, traditionally, this has been called charity, a word that we take for granted, but it is utterly Christian. It was utterly Christian. So, we should practice gratitude, knowing, rightly so, because the grace of God is at work in anyone and everyone who has responded to Jesus Christ. And that means we always have a reason to be grateful. And we should get specific. We should look for evidences of grace and delighting in faith when we see it growing and delighting in love when we see it increasing. Friends, do you thank God for the faith? Even of people who have a long way to go, do you thank God for them? Do you thank God for Reality Ventura? How often does gratitude for the church Come into your daily prayers. It's a question I've been asking myself and one that you should ask yourself. When I pray, do I begin with gratitude for the church of God and Jesus Christ because it's by his grace that the church even exists and therefore I have a reason to be grateful. These are evidences of grace. And all of this gratitude while the church is facing opposition and persecution. But far from quenching Paul's gratitude, he doubles down on gratitude. And that's where we see, thirdly, the defiance of gratitude. And I love this. I love punk rock Paul, countercultural Paul, that despite the pressure Despite the opposition that the church was facing, Paul boasts, he brags all the more in what Christ is doing in those people. Look at verse four. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast. That's what boast means. We brag about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are doing. Enduring. Now you read that verse and you think, wait a minute there. When Paul says like, I boast, you're thinking, oh, something good is coming. And then you read about persecutions and trials and you're like, wait a minute. Here's what you need to know. Paul is not naive. And he's not asking anyone in showing and modeling this gratitude that we are to pretend or fake it. The church, as he says here clearly, faced Persecutions from without and pressures from within. Persecution and trials. Persecution means that there were those who were actively troubling and opposing the church. Maybe you've experienced this as a believer in Jesus. Paul does not pretend that it was easy. Far from it. He acknowledges the persecution. And then there were trials. Some speculate that this refers to the pain and pressure they experienced internally. Although we don't know. In short, they were not having an easy time. And yet, in the midst of all this, Paul boasts. All the more, in the face of all the news... About hardship. A circumstance of which the world will look on and say, why do you have a reason to be grateful? Why do you have a reason to be happy? Why do you have a reason to have joy? And Paul says, I will see your bet and raise you. So I'm going to double down. Why? Because God was using even the hard things to grow their faith. God was using those trials to grow not only their faith, but the faith of other believers. Notice the verse says, Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith. Their testimony of endurance caused great gratitude for other churches. There are two lessons here that I think are really important. First, trials and troubles should not surprise us. Trials and troubles should not surprise the follower of Jesus in any age. I think it's important to say because I meet a lot of Christians who seem surprised that the world is a difficult place in which to live as a Christian. And yet, when we go back to what Jesus said, Jesus promised us that we would have troubles in this age. That the church would be persecuted. And regardless of where you think we're at in the end times calendar, if you will, the church has always faced persecution in different parts of the world for 2,000 years. We should not be surprised when it gets hard to be a follower of Jesus Christ, we are literally told over and over again that this would be the norm. Trials and troubles should not surprise us. But secondly, trials and troubles should not control us. They should not control us. Troubles cannot rob you of your joy. Troubles cannot take Jesus from you. Troubles cannot take your salvation from you. Troubles cannot take the Holy Spirit from you. And if people press you, then it's your opportunity to press in deeper to your relationship with Jesus Christ. And as a result, your faith will grow. And you will experience more joy and more strength. This is why it drives persecutors of the church crazy because they realize there's nothing you can take away. That's why when you read the stories across Christian history of martyrs, men and women who died for their faith, their tormentors and their persecutors were so irritated because they're like, we're going to burn your body. And they're like, I'll be with Jesus. They're like, ah, we'll take away your money. My treasure's in heaven. Like, ah, what do we do with you? I'll take away your family. Well, that will be painful, but my family is eternal with Christ. Ah, we can't take anything from you. And that is the source of a Christian's defiant gratitude. Oh, that we would have a gratitude that defies the status quo. When the culture says, you should be miserable, we say, yet there are a lot of difficult things. I'm not gonna pretend that they are not so, but I am grateful nonetheless because God is able to do his best work when times are hardest, amen? And this is possible for every single one of us. You're like, well, I'm not like Paul, but listen, Notice Paul does not boast in their strong personalities. Nor does he boast in their economic resources. I thank God that you guys have tons of money in the bank. Nor does he boast in their ease or comfort. He boasts in their faith in Jesus Christ. It is the object of our faith that makes us strong. And when we cling to Jesus in the storm, we show the world where that true strength lies. Listen, it is not inauthentic to praise and to be grateful when things are hard. In a few moments, we're gonna sing. And you might say, things are really rough. It feels disingenuous to sing. No, it's not. You have a reason that transcends your troubles. And that is the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And what we hold fast, we will hold forth to the world. And in the greatest way possible, we see this in Jesus. We believe in a savior who experienced the worst persecution and pressure of all. Who came to live in our behalf. Who was crucified on a cross for our sin. And yet it was not the nails that held him there. It was his love that held him there. For he knew that dying in our place meant salvation for us. And that's why the author of Hebrews in chapter 12, we're told to fix our eyes on Jesus, the perfecter and pioneer of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. We have a joy that transcends our troubles. It is defiant in the face of the bad news that the world tells you over and over again. Are you holding fast to Christ? There's a story told of Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones, well known preacher and author who served at Westminster Chapel in London for many years. And towards the end of his life, when he was dying of cancer, one of his friends and his associates came to visit him and asked him, How are you doing? You've been used to preaching several times a week. You have begun important Christian ministries. Your influence is extended through teachings and books to people on five continents. And now you've been put on the shelf. Great friend. He said to Martin Lloyd-Jones, you are reduced to sitting quietly. And so I am not so much asking how you are coping with the disease, but how are you coping with the stress of being out of the swim of things? What a lame question. Martin Lloyd-Jones responded by quoting scripture. Luke chapter 10, verse 20. After the disciples experienced powerful ministry, Jesus said, do not rejoice that the demons submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And he said to his friend on his deathbed, it's always been about knowing Jesus for me. And so my thrill has never faded. Friends, Are you disciplined in giving thanks to God? Start today. Are you looking for these evidences of grace? And are we willing to boast in the truth of Jesus Christ despite the storm around us? If we do, your faith will grow and your love will increase. May it be so. Hold fast to Christ. Father, I pray right now that as we respond and worship and prayer and communion, that we would hold fast to Christ so that we might hold him forth to the world. Thank you that you have not called us to pretend that everything's fine or that these troubles don't matter, but rather you give us a hope within them that is greater than them. You give us a power within them that is greater than the power of the trials and troubles around us. And in a beautiful way, as we cling more closely to you, we grow. I pray that difficult circumstances would not keep anyone back from praising you right now or giving you thanks or showing gratitude for you have given us an eternal reason. And I pray for anyone here who does not know you that right now, They would make the decision to trust in Jesus Christ for there is no other in this world who can save. So I pray that they would save from their heart. Jesus, save.